0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: Welcome to another episode of our new Sports Corner series with JWSBT Insights. Today, we are sitting down with none other than Dr. Ellen Shanley and Dr. Chug Thigpen to learn from their decades of research and clinical expertise when it comes to rehabilitating and preventing injuries in baseball athletes. Dr. Chug Thigpen is vice president for care delivery for ATI Physical Therapy, leading the clinical services and quality improvement across the ATI platform to prevent and treat musculoskeletal disorders. Dr. Ellen Shanley is a clinical research scientist for ATI and serves as the Director of Athletic Injury Research, Prevention, and Education for South Carolina's Center for Rehabilitation and Reconstruction Sciences. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics.
1: Ellen, Chuck, thank you both so much for joining us. You have decades of experience rehabilitating and preventing injuries in baseball players. It is really a privilege to sit down with you both. So thank you both for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having us.
4: Yeah, we're really looking forward to the conversation today.
1: Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience and what you've learned along the way?
3: Yeah, so Chuck and I started working together about 12 years ago on this sort of long project about baseball. Some of the really important things that I've learned is when people look at baseball injuries, they automatically think about this subpopulation just of pitchers and really recognizing that there's an injury problem in pitchers and position players, I think is an important to recognize. There's different groups of people with very different injury problems. And so we have to really look at and think about the full body impact of baseball and how it's a very much a kinetic chain sport. Chuck and I also are mentors in our fellowship program, which sends a PT fellow to the Kansas City Royals every year. At the end of their experience, they come back and they present 10 fellowship cases, cases that were either really difficult for them or they were challenging or they learned a lot from them. I think most people would be surprised that most of the cases we hear about are not shoulder or elbow cases at all. I would say, and Chuck, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that about 60 to 70 percent of the cases are other types of injuries, like lower extremity injuries, spine injuries, hand and wrist injuries. So it's a really diverse and different problem when you look at it really closely. You know, I think some of the other important things we've learned are there's a pattern to injuries in baseball. There's the early injuries, early season injuries, and late season injuries. That's pretty typical and been pretty standard over time. But the types of injuries you see are a little bit different. So one of the early season injuries that's kind of a hallmark is these oblique injuries. And they present both in pitchers and position players. The position players more in a batting sense and in pitchers really throwing. But you don't hear much about them as the season wears on. You see that the sport has changed. The time when injuries have pretty much stayed the same. But there's one thing that's consistent between all sports is that prior injury is a huge factor with injury later on. So those are things we've really learned to pay attention to.
2: I'm super fascinated by the early season and the late season injuries. You mentioned obliques. Are there any others that kind of stand out to you that you see that often?
3: Well, hamstring injuries are huge early in the season. That's both in in pitchers and position players, a little bit more in the position players. Late in the season, you usually see some fatigue-type injuries or more chronic types of things. We see a lot of UCLs later in the season, things that hold over from the season before. So sometimes you will see them early. But, you know, there's this remarkable change in a person's impairment even from beginning of spring training to the end of extended spring, which brings you to about June 1st.
4: One of the things that I think just really jumps out, that I started in the biomechanics lab, mostly ACL stuff, right? It's, you know, really focused around uh, ACL injury and focus. And I think what I learned is it's a different injury, right? Baseball injuries are different. And I started out studying the scapula, super focused And I think we lose a little bit that hamstring injuries are actually the most common injury, right? It's almost in every sport, right? And it's sort of interesting. We forget that, oh, wait, you got to have your legs to run around the baseball field. We published and saw that actually previous lower extremity injury was actually reticent and increased injury risk later in the year, in particular shoulder injuries more than elbow injuries. So we want to see it with our blinders on, and we only want to look at elbow or only look at shoulder. And that probably doesn't give the picture of the full sport participation, timing of the season. And I think that's uh, probably as I've gone through this over almost 20 years now, I have more questions than I have answers. So I started out in scapula trying to figure out like, oh, this is going to be the thing. We're going to figure out scapula. And with all due respect to Dr. Kibler, that's not it. Then the second is Ellen and I started a lot trying to study this idea of internal rotation deficit. And, and that's not it either. So I don't. we don't know what it is, but we're relatively confident those two things, at least by themselves, are not it. So maybe that's the punchline. We can just shut down the podcast good for now.
2: <laughs> In, the, in all of your experience, in all your years, how have you seen arm injuries change in that time? It's not related to the scapula and it's not the GERD, but how have you seen them change? I'm very curious in that.
3: There's a change that's gone along with the, the evolution of the game. So the game has evolved, you know, you, you see not only in rules, but you see the pitchers now in a decade have gained an average of two miles per hour on their fastball. Mm -hmm. You know, pitchers are bigger and stronger, but so are position players. So the game has changed and players have evolved with that. I mean, their training habits, their nutrition has changed, the technology available to them to study the game, and how specialized they are. And so you see a totally different type of injury in addition to the types of injuries you already saw. It's really interesting. We started to see probably about five years ago a large increase in the number of lat tears that we had in our players that we looked at in the preseason. And it really is, these players are bigger and they're working out constantly throughout the off season. They're doing a lot of back work and chest work and they become tighter in different areas. And that also has morphed over to this thoracic outlet, thoracic inlet with some neurovascular injuries related to tightness in the upper quarter. We see that, but we've also seen sort of an evolution in medical care that's delivered to players. I mean, for a long time, slap tears were automatically surgical and Mm -hmm. people didn't do well after that. They weren't able to get back to sport. So really the question becomes, is a slap tear an adaptation or is it pathological? So how should we treat that when a player is failing to thrive in terms of the ability to perform. You know, with all these injuries, the risk factors have changed too. As Chuck said early on, people found internal rotation deficit as a big side-to-side difference and sort of pointed to it. Kevin Wilk then taught us about external rotation and total arc of motion. It seems like loss in range of motion, loss in strength over time is bad, but we don't know which ones and we don't know what they're modifying by. So it's a really complex problem. I think the other part that is just the training augmentation Ellen
4: hit on kind of the fact that now baseball players don't train like baseball players anymore. They train like power athletes. You know, I think back 20 years ago, you'd have one or two guys on the staff throwing 95 and now the majority of staffs, it's got this kid at Tennessee throwing 105 is just for, and he's not a big dude. And so I think it just, it's a different game, but I think as that's leaked down a little bit Now you see adolescents who aren't physically developed doing weighted ball programs, other velocity enhancement programs, which I think changed the nature of injuries. Because not only are they highly specialized, they're they're still throwing a lot. Now they're changing at a much more rapid pace with these different programs because whatever professional athlete increased his velo and made it and had a name around it. That's the other side of it that's really I think complicated what we see now and as we're trying to understand how to keep these athletes healthy.
1: And so going off of that training has evolved a lot over the years. We've also seen a bigger emphasis on how to take care of pitchers throughout their lifespan. So particularly young pitchers for instance, we've seen that little even little league pitch counts have come into fashion. And so what are the biggest differences that we see in pitchers as they mature and how important is the age of the pitcher to really take into consideration.
4: When you go through PT school or learning how to take care of patients, it's like the first thing you ask, right? Like usually name, age. And for some reason, for a long time in baseball, that wasn't a key consideration. It wasn't at the top of the list, but I would actually suggest understanding the age and what size field you're playing on probably should be the first one or two questions in understanding where you're at. And so I think what we've seen is in working with our little league athletes, they're not skeletal mature, you know, call it 12 and under, are really different in what they look like. Those athletes do not tend to have range of motion problems unless they're hurt. If they're hurt, maybe they got some pain and adaptation around that. But really, it's a strength and maturity deficit. So I think it's it's just a different athlete, right? You're trying to teach that athlete some coordination and really the ability to withstand throwing and probably is more of a basic strengthening opportunity. Whereas as they progress into high school and then into collegiate, those progressively, depending on training and time of the season, what type fields they're playing on and what positions they are, you see a kind of this progressive loss. Of range of motion. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what are those modifying factors, what can we change clinically, and then maybe what are fixed. And, you know, I think one of the biggest revelations we've had, we, we've measured humeral torsion a long time and looked at sort of the influence of that. And we've got a paper coming out in GSBT soon, and it actually shows that humeral torsion is the underlying non-modifiable factor that influences range of motion deficits. And, and a little bit, it makes sense, I think as we've thought about it, because it's the soft tissue adaptation after you're skeletally mature, right? I, any of us can increase our range of motion, we go out and stretch and do whatever. And so it's actually the body's tendonous response to loading right? That crazy said principle, I guess it still applies. Um, Is right? You go do things and the body responds. So it makes sense over time. And then what you see is there are some chronic effects. There's an additive effect over time. As we come along, that has an uh, adaptive effect. And so in the mature throwers, they don't tend to be as responsive. And what's really interesting is torsion almost tells us which players can stretch and not stretch. So I think it becomes really interesting then to think of it, not only in terms of injury history and some of these others, but how we think about those different age groups.
2: You have touched on pitch counts and strength and coordination and range of motion. Any of these at any of those stages, can we predict arm injury?
4: We were really fortunate to work with professional organization for about 10 years, collected the same set of range of motion and torsion data on those players, was able to follow them and tried to answer just that question. And the answer was, well, not really. What we saw is actually torsion, BMI, and pitch count were the factors that contributed. And you go, okay, that sort of makes sense. But what's maybe confusing or challenging to us is only BMI was linear. That was for every single increase in BMI, there was an increase in arm risk. And you go, okay, that makes sense. Bigger guys throw harder. Like I can kind of get my head around why that might be true. What becomes difficult is for torsion and pitch count, it was a nonlinear relationship. So if you were sort of this sweet spot, if you were average, you had about seven degrees side to side difference in torsion, it seemed to be relative protective. You didn't get shoulder or elbow injury. But if you were on the extremes, if you did not have that adaptive torsion quite as much as the other baseball players, you tended to have shoulder injuries. And if you tended to maybe over-adapt, you tended to have elbow injuries. And so now what we begin to see with this is with a 10-year study, 500 pitcher seasons over the course of time, there was a lot of other nuances. Our traditional statistical approaches probably don't capture that complexity. And so the answer to your question is sort of. I think what we can identify, I don't know that we can predict injury and say, you're going to get injured, Dan, and Chelsea, you're good. But I do think we can identify that stratification of pitchers to say, Based on your profile coming into the season, we really should pay more attention to you. You're going to need something different than the other group. And I think that's really adapted how we think about injury reduction strategies, maybe less around trying to say Dan's going to get hurt, Chelsea's going to be healthy, and more around what program or prevention approach is right for Dan versus Chelsea.
2: Are there key strategies that you guys use to try to mitigate that risk?
4: I think the first thing is, who is that athlete in front of you and who are the stakeholders around? So, right, if I'm working in a little league, understanding that that athlete is different growth-wise and where they're at and understanding that how I advise and educate them, it's probably maybe the most important, less the player, and making sure the coaches and parents, because those are the stakeholders that are really driving the interaction, whereas maybe at an extreme at a professional level, my approach is going to be very different because these are adults. We tend to overcomplicate it because we spent way too long going to school to learn how to do some things. And, and really when, if they just do a basic strengthening program, that probably gets them 70% of the way there. And then the other factor that that I think is really important is if they have an injury history, they're a completely different athlete. And I think sometimes we don't understand that our goal in rehabbing somebody, not only is to get them back at sport, but is to return them to their prior level of injury risk, right? I want them to be back at that same level. And so I think that a basic arm care program is pretty effective. And if you're watching, the coaches change their behavior. Now, I don't know what they changed. I just know that over a two-year period, injury rates when we were working with these high schools on a regular basis went from 25% to 5%, which was great for the kids, bad for research.
3: I think the other thing that was important that we did is we made everybody throw for four weeks before the season, which was different than they used to do, or they usually did. And I think that was really protective because we have all those early season injuries, right? But we did do a specialized arm care program in one group and not, not in the other group. We had a similar number of prior injuries in both groups. And the one group only had two subsequent injuries, and the other group had 30 times that many injuries. It it was really impressive that this level of detail early on, which was, like Chuck said, just a basic strengthening and range of motion program, really was like an inoculation or a vaccine to, to those players that they were ready for the season. They did some things, but they did specific things that addressed the impairments that they had before they were injured
1: at all. As you know, clinicians and researchers that have put so much time into studying these injuries, do you have any advice for those who might be trying to learn more about lacrosse injuries, those that are kind of following in your footsteps in other sports that are, we're starting to see some of the same, you know, high repetition injuries coming. Do you have any advice for them?
3: I'll throw out something that really has been helpful to us is really making inroads with the coaching folks in the area. So we went out and worked in a lot of the high schools and then gravitated to some of the the training places that kids congregated to be on club teams and really started talking to coaches. And that was very enlightening to us about what some of their thoughts were. And the more we were around and the more we could have just simple dialogue, the more we exchanged ideas and things really changed for kids. They were willing to do so much to keep their kids healthy. You know, they were willing to height and weight kids every month. They were willing to have us give them recommendations on how kids should play and how they should train. So I feel like Chuck's message about stakeholders is one that's invaluable in any sport, really getting to know your stakeholders and being involved with them. And like patients, they often tell you what they need and how to provide it to them.
4: Probably because of our training, we're still in a relatively medical model. And so I, I, I think about the PARs, right? We immediately go, it's overextension and too much extension. If I stretch the hip flexors and put it on core program, that'll make it all better when actually a little bit to your point, well, maybe if I just told them not to throw, you know, not to take a hundred shots a day, they'll be better. (laughs) Like, I I just think sometimes we we overcomplicate it and get down to relatively complex solutions instead of taking a step back and going, hey, if I could do one or two things that would make this better, what would that look like? And then what can actually be done Mm. on the sideline and and stuff? Because I think sometimes... We come up with really elegant solutions and they don't work, right? Because nobody has time to do a 30-minute prevention program five times a week. Like, that ain't happening. And so I think starting looking for what, what would be the one or two things we could do to influence this. So I think looking for relatively simple solutions to implement that people will use. And it's actually, if you know, if we pay attention to our epidemiology, That's actually how epidemiology studies and tries to understand what's clinically effective because they focus less on the effectiveness. Can I change range of motion? Can I get you stronger and more on the efficacy side? So
2: this was this is encouraging because of all of your expertise and knowledge. It really your the biggest takeaway is keep it simple, like know how old your person is, how much load they're getting and then make sure they have strength and range of motion and that they're not getting too much load too fast or too much load over a period of time.
4: I think for sure. And look, I I think if if you've heard me speak or heard me talk, I talk about blocking and tackling. And Ellen and I have worked together a long time and kind of got to spot in our careers. We didn't get many new easy patients. It was always the people that weren't getting better or working with the residents and fellows. And I think the thing that always comes out, it's rarely the complicated thing it's usually the very simple blocking and tackling that get people better. And I think to your point, there's probably some really basic things if we consistently did would help our athletes stay healthier and help us be better in the clinic.
2: This was fantastic. You guys have taught us so much in such a short period of time. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. We are really, really appreciative for you being on
3: JOSPT Insights with us. Well, thanks for inviting us. It was fun. Ton of fun. Thanks so much.
1: We want to thank both for sitting down with us on the show. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app.